You are listening to the Journal of Rheumatology's Editor's Picks with Dr. Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief. Hello, this is Earl Silverman, Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Rheumatology, welcoming you to the April 2020 edition of Editor's Picks. I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen to this podcast during the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. And I want to give you all my best wishes to stay healthy through this pandemic. This month's editor's pick will be a little different as I will highlight the usual editor's pick, but also I will add in some new just off the press edit summaries of editorials on COVID-19 and rheumatologists. So in order as not to bore you with too long a podcast, I will review the five highlighted articles more briefly than usual. I will start with them. First paper to highlight today is entitled Toward Defining Primary and Secondary Non-Response in Rheumatoid Arthritis Patients Treated with Anti-TNF Results from the BioTrack and OBRI Registries by Keystone and colleagues. The aim of this study was to compare the primary and secondary non-responses to an anti-TNF agent as defined by the treating physician as compared to a post-hoc analysis by the authors using the DAS-20 ESI low disease activity, the CDAI low disease activity, and the good to moderate ULAR responses as the targets to determine response or non-response. Please read the article to see what percentage of non-responder patients in each registry also fail to achieve the individual post hoc desired responses. You'll find out if the rates were similar for the different responder tools and whether they differed between the registries. And then you will find out if the rates were similar for the primary non-responders or the secondary non-responders. You can decide for yourself if this matters and how the rating of non-response in your practice compares to those seen in the registries. The next paper to highlight is entitled Renal Parenchymal Thickness in patients with systemic sclerosis is related to the intrarenal hemodynamic variables and Raynaud renal phenomenon. It is by Gigante and colleagues with an accompanying editorial by Garachi, Sorche, and Moodle. Using Doppler and renal ultrasound, the investigators examined if there was a correlation of renal morphologic parameters with renal function and hemodynamic parameters in patients with systemic sclerosis. Please read this article and the accompanying editorial, which reviews the role of ultrasound to determine renal morphology and hemodynamic parameters in general and specifically in rheumatic diseases. Reading both of these will give you a better understanding of the potential use of this new tool to determine renal damage. The next paper is entitled, Changes in the Presentation of Incident Gout 
and the risk of subsequent flares. A population-based study over 20 years and is by Al-Fashawi and colleagues. The aim of this study was to determine if there was a change in presentation over the last 20 years using two different decades, with a secondary aim to determine the risk of subsequent gout flares after the initial gout attack and whether these differed. Please read the article, find out if incidence of initial flare, overall flare rate differed between the two groups over these decades, and what factors were associated with future flare. The next paper to highlight is entitled Insurance Payer Type and Patient Income Are Associated with Outcomes After Total Shoulder Arthroplasty and is by Singh and Cleveland. Using the 1998 to 2014 U.S. National inpatient sample, the investigators examined if annual patient household income and payer status, i.e. type of health insurance, were associated with outcomes of total shoulder arthroplasty. Please read this article to find out the investigators' conclusions about what the implications for care of patients undergoing shoulder arthroplasty in the United States and potentially other countries with different health payer systems. The last article I want to highlight before I review the special editorials on COVID-19 and rheumatologists is entitled Retinal Complications in Systemic Lupus Erythematosus Patients Treated with Antimalarial Drugs and is by McWickwee and colleagues. The aim of this study was to determine the retinal toxicity of the antimalarial agents, hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, in SLE patients and determine what, if any, factors were associated with the toxicity. They found that retinal toxicity occurred in 5.5% of 326 SLE patients treated with antimalarials. The minimum number of years of therapy before toxicity was eight years with a maximum of 33 years. Please read the article to see what factors were associated with retinal toxicity and if the authors found a difference in the rate of toxicity between hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine treatment. The next editorial I want you to be aware of is entitled Possible Consequences of Shortage of Hydroxychloroquine for Lupus Patients Amid the COVID-19 Pandemic and is by Dr. Christine Peshkin, a member of the journal's editorial committee and the associate editor for Lupus. Dr. Peshkin expands on the issues raised in the editorial from the Therapeutics Committee of the Canadian Rheumatology Committee with a focus on SLE. She reviews the extensive literature on the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine in SLE and why we all believe most, if not all, SLE patients should be on an antimalarial. Just as importantly, she reviews the potential effect, how the perceived or real threat of a limited supply 
hydroxychloroquine may increase anxiety, worry, and uncertainty about their illness in our patients as a result of the advice of the U.S. president for its use in COVID-19. Dr. Peshkin summarizes how not only may the withdrawal of an antimalum directly cause a disease flare, but how this anxiety and worry can also flare SLE. Please read this editorial to get an excellent overview and holistic view of how the lack of access to antimalarials would adversely affect the health of our patients with lupus, as well as an excellent, excellent review of the literature on this issue. The third editorial changes a little bit and is entitled The Rheumatologist's Role in COVID-19 and is by Drs. Cron and Chatham from the University of Alabama at Birmingham. We are all aware that the elderly and or people with serious underlying medical conditions are at the highest risk for death from COVID-19. In this editorial, Drs. Cron and Chatham outline and review the evidence that strongly implicates cytokine storm syndrome as a cause of serious morbidity and death in some critically ill patients with COVID-19, even in those who were otherwise healthy. They review that cytokine storm is really just a variant or another name for macrophage activation syndrome, for which we are all aware can occur in our patients with rheumatic diseases. They review guidelines to diagnose cytokine storm, which may differ depending on its cause, and then potential treatments for it. They suggest that the syndrome could should be considered in all patients who are sick enough to be admitted to the hospital, and that a serum ferritin level be measured as a screening test. They do have suggested cutoffs for further investigation. They then review potential therapies and strongly encourage randomized prospective trials of these therapies. Following the initial online publication of this article, I interviewed Drs. Krona and Chatham about their editorial. This interview too can be heard online at our website under the content heading looking for audiovisual rheumatology. I strongly encourage you to both read the editorial and listen to the interview. The final editorial we have is Learning from Adversity Lessons from COVID-19 Crisis and is by Drs. Putman and Ruderman from Northwestern University Medical School, Chicago. Dr. Ruderman is a member of the Journal of Rheumatology's Editorial Committee and is an Associate Editor for Rheumatoid Arthritis. In this editorial, the editorialists comment on how this pandemic with its social distancing has forced us 
to use telemedicine to replace the office, the office visit. They review how this, the communication revolution with almost universal internet access, at least in Western countries, had removed an important barrier to this type of visit. They then go on to say that the next barrier, at least prior to the pandemic, was financial, as in many countries, only visits from patients in rural areas would be covered by telemedicine. However, at least during the pandemic in the US and in Canada, telemedicine visits are reimbursed similar to a office visit. The editorialists review the, how the patient's perspective of telemedicine is, the effect of COVID-19 on infusion centers for our patients who require IV biologics. And lastly, they review the effect of COVID-19 on medical education. I strongly suggest reading this excellent and thorough review on how COVID-19 has changed rheumatology practice and how it may have improved some facets of practice and how we can learn from this. They suggest that even training may be enhanced. This was our final editorial on this subject. We will shortly have online interviews with the other editorialists as we have with Drs. Cron and Chatham. I strongly encourage all listeners to read these editorials and comment on them. I want to thank you all for listening to this podcast and encourage you not only to read the editorials on COVID-19, the interviews with the editorialists, and my highlighted articles, but in fact, all the articles in the April 2020 edition of the Journal of Rheumatology, either in the print edition or the online edition, which is available at www.jroom.com. Of course, the editorials will not appear in the April edition, but are available online. If there are any questions or comments on any of the articles, please send them to manuscripts at jroom.com. And I strongly encourage comments regarding COVID-19 and rheumatology. Please listen next month to the May 20th edition of Editor's Highlights. And please stay healthy in these trying times, both physically and mentally. Keep healthy.